Okay, uh, this is the part of the service where I'm a little more engaged. <laughs> so I would invite you this morning to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, John chapter 18, as we continue our exposition uh, through this wonderful time. You know, I hope you've enjoyed our time uh, so far. We've got a little bit of time left in this Gospel, <clears throat> but uh, I have certainly found it very meaningful. John chapter 18, the verses I will be reading this morning will be verses uh, 12 through verse 27. And uh, certainly we will not be able to cover each and every one in detail like I like to do, uh, but nonetheless we are going to attempt to get through these here this morning in a timely manner, in a profitable manner. John chapter 18, verses 12 through 27. And God's inspired and inerrant infallible word reads, So the Roman cohort and commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered Jesus with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. And so the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. And then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold, and they were warming themselves. And Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I also taught in the synagogues and in the temple, where all the Jews came together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. When he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, Is that how you answer your high priest? And Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? So Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, So they said to him, You are not also one of the disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Father, we ask a blessing upon the reading of your word. And now would your spirit open these words for us? Would your spirit open our hearts and our minds? Would your spirit illuminate this text for us so that we know how to understand it? Uh, But most importantly, or as importantly, uh, that we know how to apply it to our life. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Jesus before the kangaroo court. I kind of thought the title was fitting. The rest of the rest warrant for Jesus has been issued and carried out. Jesus has been arrested and is bound. And the one who began his ministry by by proclaiming, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, 
Because He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, to set free those who are oppressed. This one now finds Himself in bounds. And yet we know that these bounds could never hold Jesus. It is through these very bounds that true freedom will come for the true believer. And as Jesus finds Himself before this kangaroo court, I want you to notice the hard-heartedness of the unconverted. Verses 12-14, through 14, the hard-heartedness of the unconverted. We see it starts out here in verse 12 with three groups of people. We have the Roman cohort. we got the Roman army, if you will. We've got the commander of that army. And then we got the officers of the, of the religious Jewish people. And these three here now bind Jesus and bring Him before this so-called court. This kangaroo court. All three groups hold <clears throat> had, had fallen flattened on their face as they asked for Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus said, I am. And at the word of I am, they have fallen flat upon their, their face. They also noticed and observed and were there as Peter took out his dagger and made a dash for, the, for Malchus's head. He certainly meant to kill him. And as Malchus ducked, he only got his ear, whacked it off. And they observed Jesus restore and heal that ear. These are the ones who were there. And for those, I might add this morning, who think that a miracle, seeing a miracle, will cause someone to become a believer, I offer you these people here this morning that it takes more than a miracle for someone to be saved. Because these people here seen two miracles on this very night, and yet we notice the hard-heartedness of these here people. First, they bring Jesus before Annas. We see it in verse 13. After they bound Jesus, they arrested Him, they bound Him. Verse 13, and they led Him first to Annas. Now, it has been said of Annas, he was a proud and exceedingly anxious or ambitious and fabulously wealthy. And the main source of his wealth seems to have been a goodly share of the proceeds from the price of the sacrificial animals which were sold in the court of the Gentiles. It seems as though this is where Annas made his money. And so I want to remind you this morning of the righteous anger that Jesus displayed in this money-making temple. In John chapter 2, verse 14, we got the account of where Jesus came into the temple. He's seen the money changers. He's seen those that were selling sacrificial animals for profit. He got upset with that. He made a whip and he drove the animals and the people out. He flipped over the tables. He done all these types of things to irritate the people and drove them out of the temple because he was making his father's temple a den of thieves. And they said to Jesus, again, I remind you, Jesus was one man and there must have been hundreds of people in the temple. And one man drives them all out. And they said to him, show us what sign will you have to prove that you have the authority to do such a thing. Well, one man driving that many people out of the temple in and of itself should be enough evidence for them. But nonetheless, they didn't. And it is this possibly, not to read too much into the text, that Annas may have on his mind. 
This is a troublemaker that is now before him. He's bound up. He's in chains. He's tied up with a rope. However they, they, they um, <clears throat> tied him up. Nonetheless, he is now before Annas. And Annas has his opportunity to uh, cast a judgment uh, upon his adversary, upon his competition, if you will. It is also, history tells us, that Annas had five sons. And all five sons had been past high priests. Annas had a grandson who was also a high priest. And the current high priest, Caiaphas, was Annas' son-in-law. So you, you talk about a, a dynasty, the first family of high priests, that would have certainly been this particular family. Certainly a dynasty that had come upon them. And Annas, <clears throat> I would, would remind you this morning because the text can be confusing, he was not actually the current high priest. But as we would have our own current presidents, if they're no longer president, we still refer to them as president. It's the same way here. Annas is still referred to as the high priest, though he's not necessarily the acting in the current high priest here. And I might offer also some application this morning as we think about it, right? We have those who on paper are the actual leaders. And then there are the actual leaders. And everyone knows who the actual leaders unofficially are, right? Nothing is new then that is not currently here today. And that's exactly what we see in Annas here. Annas is the one in charge, although he is not in charge. And that is why they first took Jesus to Annas. They needed to get his approval. They needed to get his direction on how to proceed with this menace, with this enemy, with this troublemaker that they finally have captured. Now it is said also, just as a little bit of historical note for Caiaphas, it has been said of Caiaphas that, that he was as rude and sly manipulator and opportunist who did not know the meaning of fairness or justice or who was bent on having his own way by hook or by crook. That's what it was said of Annas. And so certainly these particular religious leaders, these high priests, were not somebody that anybody necessarily wanted to mess with. John also reminds us of what Caiaphas said in verse 3. John gives us a lot of detail in this narrative. And he says in verse 14, he reminds us of who Caiaphas is. And he reminds us that this is the guy who said that it is better for one man to die for the nation than the whole nation perish. It was this man who unknowingly, unwillingly, unexpectedly prophesied of the future of God's people. It, it is this person who John wants us to remember. And I also want to remind you this morning that all the way back at the healing at the pool of Bethesda, if you remember that account all the way back in John chapter 5, where Jesus healed the man sitting beside the pool. And as he healed this man, there was two problems with that, right? First, he healed on the Sabbath, which would have been the Saturday, would have been their day of work, their holy day. He healed this man on the Sabbath, not lawful. And he also, in the process, made himself an equal and therefore calling himself God. Therefore, John tells us that from that place or that time forward, they were seeking an opportunity to kill Jesus. In John chapter 7, just a couple chapters later, 
where Jesus challenges these religious leaders and said, did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you carries out the law. And then he asked the question, why are you trying to kill me? And of course they're saying, oh, you're ridiculous. We're not trying to kill you. Well, certainly they were. And almost from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, they were trying to do away with Jesus. <clears throat> and it is now this kangaroo court that Jesus finds himself before because they are bent on protecting their own power, their own self-interest, no matter the cost. They will do away with the competition. And Jesus is in the way. Jesus is in the way. It is only John who records this episode for us before this kangaroo court and before Annas. Verse 15, that tells us that John knew this high priest. And I find that narrative uh, interesting, and I've chosen to kind of pass over it this morning. Uh, but I will just put it before you a little bit to your attention. Some would, would actually call a, a contradiction to the text here. But John just adds a little more information that the other gospel writers don't include for us. And I find it interesting that John, him obviously being the person, this other person that he doesn't name, but he, he knew the guy. He went out and let Peter in. So I find that little relationship interesting that you might also find interesting if you want to do a little further study on, on that account. You, you might find it somewhat interesting. Uh, but it is here before this kangaroo court uh, that we will observe the humility of Jesus. And this is the part of the text that I really want to hone in on here this morning. Uh, verses 19 through 24. We see the humility of Jesus. Verse 19. It starts out with the high priest, which would have been Annas, then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Now this was no questioning. This wasn't a time to get together. Hey, let's have a coffee. Let's meet at the Grove and have a cup of coffee. And let's talk this through. Let's talk this out. No, no, this was an interrogation. This was not a, a questioning of Jesus. This was a flat-out, full-fledged interrogation. And I might add, it was also an illegal one at that. Because we know the outcome being on this side of the cross. We know the outcome of how it went. First, uh, no trial. This is just the law that they had of their day. That no trial for life could have been allowed at night. So if you're seeking the death penalty for someone, it cannot happen at night. That way, no funny business, no kangaroo business can happen. So that was the one law that they broke. The arrest of Jesus, it came about because of bribe money, because of blood money when, they, when, when Judas betrayed Jesus. That also was against their laws. And also here in this questioning, Jesus was asked to incriminate himself. Well, even in our laws today, no one is asked to speak on their behalf if it could possibly incriminate them. And here they're asking Jesus to do that. And then finally also in a capital punishment case <clears throat> that we know happened, uh, it could not happen on the same day. So, so the, the, the verdict must have been, would have had to have been carried out that next day. And yet we hear, we know that within 24 hours, Jesus is murdered. Jesus is, is killed. Breaking every one of these laws and these rules that they had for themselves on their own books. Well, I want to look at verse 19 again. Um, 
simply because these questioning was specific in two areas, in two ways. First, they wanted to know about the disciples of Jesus. Second, they wanted to know, what are you teaching these disciples? They wanted to know, Jesus, what are you teaching? So Annas, he wanted to know about the disciples. (laughs) Did the Jewish leaders have concern? That's really what they want to know. Okay, we're going to get rid of Jesus. We've already made up our mind years ago. And now that we're actually going to go through with it, we've got to find out who's going to step up. Who can step up to replace Jesus? Do we have something to worry about in the future after the fact? Are they radicalized? Are they leaders or are they just followers? This is the way the questioning, I'm sure, went. Well, let's see what the outcome was. Uh, If you want to write this down or turn in your Bibles, you can do that to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, I want to read a couple verses here for you. Uh, Verses 28 through 32 of Acts chapter 5. Now when they, actually, I guess, verse 27. When they, again, the religious leaders, brought them, the disciples of Jesus, before the court, before the council, the high priest, who I remind you here, was also the same high priest. It was Caiaphas. And so they were preaching, they were teaching, they were evangelizing. And so they brought him before the high priest and they said, listen, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, the name of Jesus. And yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intent on bringing this man's blood, Jesus' blood, on us. Peter said, uh, whatever, we must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised Jesus up, whom you had put to death by hanging him on the cross. He was the one who God exalted to the right hand as the prince and the savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. <laughs> Radicalized? Yep, maybe. Evidently, they had right to be questioning and right for concern. They might have got rid of Jesus, but they didn't get rid of their problems. They didn't get rid of their problems at all, did they? Well, that's the first specific question that they had for Jesus. Who are your disciples? What are they all about? The second, the text tells us, they wanted to know about what Jesus was teaching. What are you teaching, Jesus, in verse 19? Look at your text in verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Now, now teaching here is, is, is doctrine. It's theology. They wanted to know, uh, what are you teaching? What is your theology? What is your doctrine? What was he teaching? And I might also add here, I just... And I know theology and doctrine are are words that we we don't like for some reason, but but here it's exactly what gets Jesus in trouble. And you know, the seeker-sensitive movement of the past 30 years has all about left, left sound teaching. It has been replaced with pragmatic talks, and it has left Christians in a state of malnutrition. Look, the past 30 years, so much of the preaching, so-called preaching that has happened in our churches, has left 
theology, has left doctrine wanting, lacking, non-existent. And I would offer you to do this morning, if you ever find yourself in this place, you're going to be thankful for what you know, for what you have been taught, and for what you, you believe. In the past, has just, uh, uh, has just the past 30 years has really done harm for the Christian church. And fortunately, though, there has been a resurgence and a hunger for doctrine and for theology. Fortunately, that hunger is back. And I, I would want to then flip to Philippians chapter 3. Uh, again, because I'm going to spend some time on this point, as you can imagine. Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 and 19. Where Paul is writing there to the church of Philippi. To a church that is struggling. To a church that is actually doing well. And yet is a church that needs to continue to stay on track. And Paul has this for them. Brethren, join in following my example, he says. Observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. For many walk, of whom I am often told you, and now tell you with weeping, that they are actually enemies of the cross of Christ, whose destruction is the end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Now, appetite can certainly mean food, but if that's what we get focused on, that would be, we'd be ill-advised on that. Our appetite is our, is our desires, right? Whatever those desires may be, the desires of our nature, the desires of what we, we desire. And Paul is saying here, and listen, those people have been led astray. And I'm telling you, so much of what is taught today, well, you'll end up in this boat right here. You'll end up with, with not knowing, with not, as difficult times and as trouble come into our life, the pragmatic talks will not sustain you. They will not nourish you. They will not fill you when the moment of truth arises. And that's Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. But I want to turn to Romans, and I would, I would suggest... I would encourage you this morning to turn to Romans with me. Um, <clears throat> Romans chapter 16. Because again, I'm going to continue to hone in and pound on this point of teaching. Uh, Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. As, Roman, as Paul writes here to the church in Rome, he says this, verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions. And hindrance is contrary to the teaching, to the doctrine. Literally in Greek, it's the doctrine. Which you learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves of what? Not of Jesus Christ. No, no, no. But of their own appetite. Again, of their own desires. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Now, now I, I'm just going to unpack that here just a little bit. Just going to unpack that a little bit, and I'm going to take it line by line on verse 17. And I just want, to, want you to notice, Paul starts out with, I urge you. I exhort you. I beg you, you could say. And Paul is pleading with them. Listen, brethren. Listen, sisters. I urge you, pay attention to what is taught. Pay attention to what is before you. I appeal, I exhort. Keep your eye on those. Keep your eye on them. Notice. Closely regard what is happening. Closely regard what they are teaching. Pay attention to what is going on, Paul says here. 
And what does he want them to keep an eye on? He wants to keep an eye on those who are causing dissension. And literally that is just taking one group of people and splitting it into two. And sometimes that is needed. But here it's in the negative sense, where it's in a dissension, where it's in a way that that false doctrines, that false teachings are being taught. And it is just to cause people to to be angry with one another. It's to cause people not to like one another. And it is to cause people to think of one another as enemies. That would be the definition, if you were going to look in your, in your lexicon, that's exactly the definition that it would give you for the word dissension. And that is what Paul wants, is urging them to keep an eye out on for, is those who want to cause this type of dissension in the body of Christ. And he says not only dissension, but also hindrances contrary to the doctrine, to the theology that I have been teaching, Paul says. And, 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 and hindrance here, it, it's just, it, it's, it can be somewhat comical, but it, it's literally, it's a life trap. It, it's, it's literally, in other, in other contexts, it's used as, as a trap to trap people, to trap animals, to trap and trip you up. It's an action or a circumstance that, that can lead a person to act contrary to what they have been taught, contrary to a set of beliefs that they have. This is what Paul is urging this as he closes out this letter to the church in Rome. He leaves this exhortation for them. And he says, listen, these dissensions, these hindrances, they're contrary to what I've been teaching. They're contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. This was so much of Paul's ministry, so much of Paul's life. As he planted these churches, he put pastors, he put men into the pulpits of these churches to lead the churches. And he always gave them this particular warning. He did it for Timothy in Timothy for, uh, 1 Timothy 1.3. He says, I urge you upon my departure to remain at Ephesus. Why, Paul? So that, right? This is why. So that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrine, not to teach Strange theology, not to teach error. That's exactly what he wants. And you know what? Now would just be a great time again to remind you of what I remind you of all the time, right? It's not good enough to know what you believe. Every single person knows what they believe. Very few people know why they believe it. They can tell you what they believe, but they do not know why they believe it. And listen, that is so, so, so important for you to be able to answer that question. Listen, today you don't have to worry about it so much. In our world today, you don't have to worry about it so much. We have no guarantee on the future. And I'm telling you, if you find yourself before a kangaroo court, it matters. It matters. Doctrine, theology matters. You have one but you often cannot define it or express it. But Paul tells them here to, to turn away from them. Just, just, just leave those people. Steer clear. Purposefully avoid such men. Purposefully avoid such women who are teaching such things as this. In Matthew, Jesus said this. He said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. A ravenous wolf. Do you recognize a false prophet? It's a serious question. It's a deadly serious question. 
Can you recognize the marks of a false prophet? Can you? Now, (laughs) calm down now, calm down. (laughs) I'm not preaching on Romans here this morning. That'll be for starting in October. (laughs) But I want you to understand the importance of sound doctrine, of sound theology, of right belief, of biblical belief. Listen, we all spend so much time reading fantastic books, fantastic authors who help me immensely. I don't come up with anything new on my own. If it's new, it's probably not true. We learn so much from authors and writers who came before us. (laughs) And how can we not watch some of the best YouTube preachers on the internet? I often remind people, look, if you come to Holly Grove to hear a great preacher, you're going to be disappointed, right? If you want to hear a great preacher, I can point to you a few great preachers, and you already know who they are. But we've got to make sure those we're listening, those we're following, and I encourage you to listen to great preachers throughout the week. But we've got to be careful who we listen to. And unless we know why we believe what we believe, We will not make good choices of the books we read or the preachers, the talks that we listen to. We must, we must, we must know why we believe what we believe. Jesus says his followers, and I think maybe we miss this often in the church in America. Jesus says his followers can expect to be treated just like he was. And fortunately, I thank God that the freedoms that we have in this country that we can worship however we want on a Sunday morning. We need to be thankful for that. We're not guaranteed that that will always be here for us. Are you prepared? Are you prepared to be questioned as Jesus was here? Are you prepared to be interrogated for what you believe as Jesus was here? And many who came before, or came after, I should say, Jesus, and certainly the prophets that came before Jesus, Martin Luther, Martin Luther, the reformer, before the Diet of Worms, he was told to recant from his writings, recant of the things that you spoke against the state church. And he said this, he says, unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, and I'm not here to exegete his quote, but I think we could do well by listening to those two words, by scripture and by plain reason. And I want to offer you to this morning that the true and accurate reading and understanding of the text is usually the plain meaning of the text, right? Just read it. That's what it means. And he said, unless I'm convicted by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and consuls, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. Help me, God. Well, and he certainly was defrocked. He certainly was kicked out of the church. He was not martyred, though he died a relatively younger man with all kinds of health issues from the stress that he was under. But I want to offer you someone else also this morning, and that would be William Tyndale. We can, we can uh, in part, thank 
William Tyndale for the, for the Bibles that we have this morning. It was written of William Tyndale that at last when he was convicted, at last after much reasoning is said of him, when no reason could serve, he could not be changed. And although he deserved no death, he was condemned by virtue of the emperor's decree. And upon the same brought forth to the place of execution, was there tied to the stake, then strangled first by the hangman, afterwards with fire consumed, crying thus at the stake, as they said, William Tyndale, as you're tied to the stake, you got one last opportunity to recant your writings, to recant what you are teaching. And William Tyndale, it is said, cried out in a loud voice, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Listen, those are two men that didn't just know what they believed. They understood why they believed it, and they were willing to lay down their life for what they believed. I offer you Jesus. When he was crucified, he cried out upon that cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. At the stoning of Stephen, as he fell to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Father, do not hold this sin against them. Men who not only knew what they believed, they knew why they believed it. And again, self-help pragmatic talks will not equip you for this kind of questioning, for this kind of interrogation. Well, I also want you to notice in verses 20 through 21 <clears throat> where we see the confidence of Jesus. The confidence of Jesus. Jesus says, <clears throat> look, I have spoken plainly. I've spoken plainly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temples where all the Jews, where all the religious people came together. I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question? Why do you question me? Jesus says, I spoke openly. I spoke plainly. I didn't speak in secret. I didn't hide out in a closet. I didn't read out of a text that the average person couldn't read. No, I spoke openly. I spoke plainly. In fact, in John chapter 7, in John chapter 7, verses 20, or verse 26, they said of Jesus, look, there he is speaking in public. And they, these religious leaders, are saying nothing about him. Do the, really, do the rulers actually think and know that he is the Christ? Jesus clearly spoke openly. He spoke plainly. Anyone who wanted to hear could hear. Anyone who wanted to listen could listen. There was no ambiguity. He was hiding nothing. Do you know why Tyndale was killed, was murdered? For translating the Bible. For translating the Bible into the common language of the people out of Latin. Latin, nobody understood Latin except for the educated. And then they interpreted the Bible how they wanted to interpret the Bible. I don't care if it's, if, if it's German. The way I grew up, you only preached out of the German Bible. That was it. It was the Bible of the people, the language of the people. I don't care if it was German, if it was Latin. Tyndale said, no, no, this ain't right. 
we got to have a Bible for the common people to hear. And Tyndale said, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life, I will cause a plowboy in the field to know more about the Word of God than the priest the altar. I would say he was successful with that, but it cost him his life. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 1 tells us, the wicked flee when no one is pursuing. <laughs> Interesting. The wicked flee when no one is pursuing, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. And I might add, you can only be as bold as a lion if you not only know what you believe, but you know why you believe it. Well, verses 22 to 23, we see the cowardness, the cowardness of these religious leaders. <laughs> Jesus says, why are you asking me? Why are you questioning me? Question those who have heard. Where's your witnesses? Where's your, where are those who are going to testify against me? Ask them. They'll know what I taught. Well, he got smacked for that. They struck him and said, do you speak to the high priest that way? I might remind you, Jesus was still bound. And yet they smacked him anyways. The courage. The courage, right? Well, Annas played his part. He set the stage. He gave sufficient time for the members of the Sanhedrin to gather together at the official high priest's place, Caiaphas, this hour of the night anyways. So verse 24 tells us, Ananias, or Annas, sent him, Jesus bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And now, as John toggles back and forth, he now turns the story back to Peter. And it is in Peter that we will recognize the helplessness of the Christian. The helplessness of the Christian. Verses 15 and 18 and 25 to 27. I've chosen, I'm not going to exegete that text here this morning. We don't have time for it. Plus, I don't really want to. But we will visit this beautiful story of redemption in the last chapter of John. What a magnificent way that will be to end our two and a half year journey through the Gospel of John. But in closing, I want to place before you the juxtaposition of Judas and Peter. See, Judas is an example and a dire warning for us to take heed. Judas was overcome by his act of betrayal. And because he did not understand who Jesus is, he fell into despair that led to his total rejection of Jesus. So too Peter is an example for us but, but not as a dire warning, but rather as an urgent reminder to the amazing degree of weakness that can be found in the strongest Christian. Peter was overcome by his denying of Jesus. And because he saw Jesus for who Jesus is, he fell into despair. Yes, he did. But that despair led to his total surrender to Jesus. To Jesus. Because he understood who Jesus was. I was reminded uh, of Paul also, Romans 7. I've been spending a lot of time in 7, as you can imagine. 
Are the words of Paul in the seventh chapter where Paul said this. It's my life verse. Not really, but it could be. It could be all of ours, right? For what I'm doing, I don't understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do. But I am doing the very thing that I hate. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. How can that be? If we think that we can do this Christian life on our own, we too will fail. It is only after you realize that you do not have the ability, the wherewithal, to obey what the law requires of you, that you will totally surrender and throw yourself at the mercy of the gracious and compassionate Savior. Have you done that? Have you done that this morning? Have you totally surrendered your life to Christ this morning? I trust that you have. And if you have, I believe within this story of Peter, I believe within this story of redemption, you too will take great comfort. If you have not, and then I would offer you this morning that there's no better time than now. Not a single one of us has a guarantee for tomorrow or next week or next month or next year. Do you know Jesus? Not about Him. Do you know this Jesus? I pray you do. Father, I thank you for your example. I thank you for the courage that you have shown and for the men and women who came after you and before you who shown similar courage as our example, as, as my example. And Father, I, I pray that you would strengthen our resolve that you would strengthen our hearts and our minds and our trust and our belief in you. I pray, Father, that you would uh, uh, strengthen and correct, encourage whatever would be applicable there of what we believe. I pray that you would bring meaning, that you would help us to understand why. And those beliefs that we hold, uh, that, that, Father, are, are not correct, that teaching, that doctrine, that theology that we hold uh, about you, about faith, those things that, uh, Father, we're misled by, by our own appetites, by our own desires. Father, I pray that you would uh, shed those from our life, that you would expel those from our thoughts and our mind and our heart, and that you would fill that void with your word, with your truth, with your spirit. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.